Do you realize that our, our, our greatest need has always been our greatest need, but we're beginning to see more clearly that our greatest need has always been our greatest need. And what is this greatest need? Humility. Now, some of you are going to want to say, our greatest need is Jesus. And you're right, and I agree, certainly. Jesus is our greatest treasure. Jesus is our all in all. However, James also tells us that, that God opposes the what? The proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible to have pride in your life and still be a Christian. Am I right? Because we would all be in a heap of trouble if that was the case. But I am saying that humility is the number one door into our relationship with Jesus and that pride, therefore, is the number one barrier to that relationship. Living in humility is not easy, but the process of becoming humble is far more difficult and usually filled with tremendous pain. But here's the thing. God can and will humble us whether or not we actually become humble. As I've reminded us lately, that God is constantly using people and circumstances to reveal what's in our hearts so that we can be transformed by his truth. God is constantly using people and circumstances, and we find ourselves immersed in these incredibly strange circumstances and surrounded by uh, these cramped spaces with all these people. Yes, people we love, but, but we're still cramped with them. So God is using those people and God is using these circumstances to reveal what's in your heart, to reveal what's in my heart. Why? With the express purpose of helping us to be transformed by his truth. In other words, God is always seeking to humble us. But we may not be willing to be humbled. And when that happens, when God humbles you and you're not willing to be humbled, then all you have is pain with no gain. You have suffering with no intended benefit. And we all understand we are living in unprecedented times. Except for those who will tragically lose their lives, we will all emerge from this one day. And however it turns out, there will be lessons to be learned for decades. We're going to be learning valuable lessons about epidemiology. We will be crunching the economic data and the economic fallout. There will be sociological lessons. There will be uh, clear political lessons. There will be medical preparedness lessons. But the chief question is, how will these days have changed our hearts? Will we be able to look back in 10 or 20 years from now and identify all the ways that God has humbled us through this process? Will you have barely survived these days or will you look back on it and say uh, that you were able to be humbled and thrive through these days? Will you have barely survived, or you, you look back and say, you know what, God's spirit literally and genuinely humbled you during this time. I've begun calling this the great humbling. And by calling it that, I'm hearkening back to the great awakening in the 1700s under Jonathan Edwards and others. Now, a great revival in the great awakening broke out, which lasted, lasted for several decades. So will a great revival break out in our day? 
Well, frankly, I don't have the slightest idea if that will happen or not. But here's what I do know. I know that the Great Awakening was born out of great humility because you cannot have a revival without humility before God. Furthermore, I can call it the, the great humbling with utter confidence because we know that God intends everything for our humility. So we need to see this, if you have not begun to do this yet, we need to see this time as a gift because any time that you are humbled by God is for your benefit and for his glory. And thankfully, the entire Bible is a record of this very thing. We can look back on, on more than 2,000 years of biblical history and we see the lessons that were learned and the lessons that were not learned. We can look back to see who was humbled and who ended their lives in stubborn pride. And biblical history does not look kindly on a man named King Hezekiah. But we get the opportunity this morning to look at segments of Hezekiah's life and learn some really important lessons. Years ago, I went to a Forest Lakes District Conference with, with Tony Baxter, and the entire morning session was called The Leadership Genius of Hezekiah. Now, okay, if you know Hezekiah's life, you can say that's true if you take certain slices of his life, but, but isn't that true with all of our lives? I mean, with 80 years approximately in our lifetime, there, there are certainly little slices of, of some creative genius or, or some really great success. But if you consider all of Hezekiah's life, I don't see leadership genius. I see prideful failure. So what we're going to do this morning is, is take a look at his life really from, from 30,000 feet because we don't have time to read all, every word of his story, but we will see his humility clearly displayed as well as his tremendous pride. Hezekiah was... 25 years old when he began to reign over the southern kingdom of Judah. The year was 17, 6, 716 B.C. And if you know your Bible history, you know that about 250 years before he became king, that Israel was a united uh, nation uh, under King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon. And, and after King Solomon, Rehoboam was responsible for dividing the kingdom into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of, of Judah, never to be united again. I want to show you the two kingdoms, a comparison of the two kingdoms here, uh, one after another. In this chart, you see the good kings are colored in blue and the bad kings are colored in red. So, so tell me there, you there sitting on your uh, comfy chairs, uh, which, how many good kings do you see here? <laughs> of course, no good kings. There were 19 kings spanning 219 years and not a single one of them worshiped the Lord. Now in the Southern Kingdom, it's vastly different, but we, but we see a pattern here. In the first Approximately third, there's kind of a mixed bag of, of good and bad kings. And when I say good and bad, it's separated by those who worship the Lord. Those are the bad kings. Those who fundamentally, uh, uh, did, I say, did I say that wrong? Uh, those who worship the Lord are fundamentally the good kings. Those who did not worship the Lord, worship idols, foreign gods, were fundamentally the bad kings. So the first third were mostly a, a mixed bag. In the middle there is mostly good and then the last third are mostly ungodly kings. 
And we see Hezekiah appearing toward the end of the, the so-called middle period here. But notice what comes before and after Hezekiah's reign. Hezekiah's father was, he was a red king. He was, he was a, a bad, ungodly king. But his son, then there's Hezekiah, blue, then their son. His son was the longest reigning and most evil king of, of either kingdom, northern or southern kingdoms. And the son Manasseh is going to come into the story just a little bit later. There is a lot to say about Hezekiah that is good and admirable. We're going to get in a moment to this Assyrian invasion of the army, but I need to point out that, as you can see from this, this chart, Hezekiah's father was an ungodly king, but, but he had followed, look at all those blue bars, he had followed 135 consecutive years of godly kings. But after his ungodly father, Hezekiah was able to, to turn the nation back to service to the Lord. And he did what everybody did in that time of, of revival and reformation. He destroyed all the foreign gods and, and idols and, and led the people back to dependency and worship of the Lord alone. Not, not, sometimes there's worshiping the Lord and foreign gods simultaneously. That was most common. Sometimes it was almost all foreign gods. Uh, but uh, he returned it to almost entirely worshiping the Lord. But that wasn't enough because then Hezekiah was mightily humbled. And here's where the Assyrian army comes into play. And they, they came down from the north to, to conquer not just the city of Jerusalem, but the entire nation of Judah. And understand that the Assyrians were the world superpower of their day. To, to use a modern illustration, this would be like the United States invading like, like Guatemala or some, some other tiny nation. You got the entire power of the United States military against a little tiny nation uh, such as Guatemala. So, so this uh, Assyrians attacking Judah was going to be an absolute bloodbath. Worse still, the commander of the Assyrian army came to Jerusalem and began to mock Hezekiah. He said this, Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand? that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion. And do not believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? This mocking then came to a head with a not-so-friendly wager. The commander of the army said this, Come now, said this to Hezekiah, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. Do you understand this wager here? Again, if, if the illustration, the comparison was the United States versus Guatemala, we would say to them, come now, we will give you 2,000 Abrams tanks. In fact, we will give you all the military equipment you could possibly use to, to defeat us. 
but it's not going to matter because you don't even have enough trained soldiers to use the equipment that we're giving you. So, so it's a lost cause either way. I want us to see there are actually two gifts of humbling occurring here. The first gift is the very fact of the Assyrian army being there and the nation of Judah about to be wiped off the map. There's no way they were going to win in their own strength. So this promised attack was an opportunity to humble themselves and trust in God's provision. That, that's gift number one. But then notice, even in the mocking itself, was another gift, gift number two. Because what the army commander was doing was unwittingly forcing Hezekiah and the entire nation to be even more humble. Did you see? Hezekiah already knew that he could not fight this superpower, but here we have the commander mocking him all the more and reminding him, yeah, you're right, Hezekiah. You, you can't do it. And let me explain all the reasons why, why you're not able to do that. And I think this can be likened to our, to our present circumstances. This is a period of, of humbling. Once again, some, some are laid off. Some have reduced work hours. Children and teams who, who are not usually home are, are home all day. And I say it like that on purpose, all day. Even parents who, who are going off to work are spending extended times in their homes. So this is humbling enough by itself, but then, then we have the media essentially telling us that a good many of us are going to die. It's, it's like mocking us when we're already down. But we can also see that, that this is a gift because the media, do you see, they are unwittingly reminding us that we are actually helpless and hopeless without God. We already knew that to some degree. Hopefully you're beginning to realize that. But their, their, their panic, their alarmist mentality is giving us, if we're able to see it, a second gift and reminding us, yes, we are hopeless and helpless without God. So God humbled Hezekiah through, through this invasion. So what did Hezekiah do? What did he, what did he do? He, he prayed. As my former senior pastor used to say with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek, has it really come to this? Is it really that bad that we have to pray? We understand that genuine prayer is an act of humility and desperation. And at this moment in time, Hezekiah was utterly desperate. And he prayed this, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, that was the, the king of Assyria, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. It's a tremendous prayer of trust, recognizing that, yes, he and they, the entire nation, were helpless and hopeless without God. And what was the result of that prayer? Reading further down, that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. 
It was a swift act of judgment and deliverance all rolled into one. And in this case, Hezekiah's humility was greatly rewarded through the Lord's victory. Soon after God delivered Hezekiah and the nation from the Assyrian army, Hezekiah received a visit from the prophet Isaiah with some, some really bad news. And he said this, Isaiah said, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Now, now, now can you admit that Hezekiah was having a bad year? I, I don't care how, how bad your year is. He was having a bad year. He had just narrowly, not narrowly, but uh, almost was destroyed by this Assyrian army if it weren't for the power of God intervening. Uh, now he is told that, that his death was imminent. And, and when Isaiah told him this, he was already on his sick bed, extremely ill. So when he learned this message, he was probably a day or two from his death. I was texting Scott Niprath this week and jokingly asked him a question for which there, there really is no answer at this point. And I asked him, when will we reach the peak of this thing? And he texted back and said, well, that, that is the million dollar question. So I texted back just still humorously. I said, will I die? You know, you know what Scott Niprath, as an elder, in all of his deep compassion working with uh, hospitals and, uh, and clinics. Do you know what he said to me? To the answer to my question, will I die? He, he just said, texted back, yes. Yes, you will die. And, and then he said, the death rate for Americans stands at 100%. And of course, I knew he was no longer, we were no longer talking about COVID-19, but rather about the stark reality of the brevity and inevitability, brevity of life and the inevitability of our death because it will come to all of us eventually. Scott said, he, he made a prediction, between zero and 50 years for me, which, hey, that's not bad. I, I could live to 106, uh, if that's what he's saying. But these times in which we're living, much like going to a funeral, funerals are tremendous times to reflect upon our mortality, to, to reflect upon our heart and our relationship with the Lord. And I think we ought to, every believer, every non-believer, ought to take Hezekiah, Isaiah's words to Hezekiah to heart. Set your house in order. In other words, he's asking, is your house, is your house in order? Are you ready to die? If it happened in a day or two, as it was going to happen to Hezekiah, was prophesied it would happen to him, are you ready? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone and nothing else? Have you repaired all of your relationships? Have you made all the apologies uh, that you can? Have you, have you set your whole house in order? It's not meant to scare you, but to, to use these sorts of opportunities to do what even the Word of God tells us to do. But imagine being told the exact date of your death like Hezekiah was. What, what an absolutely horrible thing to be told. I hope you would agree, but there are times when we say, you know, I, I wish I could peer into the future. I wish I knew how this whole thing was going to turn out. I wish I, I don't need to know 50 years from now, but it might, it might be nice to know three or four weeks out into the future. If I could just see a glimpse of that, wouldn't that be nice? 
No, no, you, you, you don't want to do that. You don't, you don't want to ask for that because we're, we're going to end up knowing things like Hezekiah knew the exact date of his death and, and the weightiness and, the, and the, 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 the suffering that would result from, from knowledge that, that we ought not to know, knowledge that, that belongs to God alone. But you know what Hezekiah did with this knowledge, this horrible report? He once again responded in humility. He wept bitterly. He, he prayed to the Lord and God listened once again and decided to extend his life an additional 15 years. Based on these two stories, you might think that, that Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. Well, next we see how he ended his reign. Up until this stage of things, Hezekiah was given the gift of being humbled by God, and he was able to respond in proper humility. But his real problems began not while he was being humbled, but when he experienced a time of immense prosperity. What happened is that the lesser known kingdom of Babylon, which was soon to become the world's superpower uh, after they replaced Assyria in several dozen years. So at this point, they're a small, small kingdom of Babylon. There's just, just a nothing little nation. And they, they visited Hezekiah and, and, and Judah, and, and uh, King Hezekiah showed him uh, and the, their, their company all of his wealth. And it was a, all the vast wealth of the kingdom. And it was an audacious example of pride after what we had seen as two, two examples of deep humility. And, and here's the result of that. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, if, again, if you know your biblical history, what he's describing is here the 70-year Babylonian captivity. He is describing God, by the way, had predicted this ever since the nation of Israel was formed under Saul. Uh, this had always been the condition that was looming upon them, that if they followed the Lord, he would continue to be with them. If they rejected the Lord, take heed. God's judgment would fall, and he's been predicting this sort of thing, thing for 400 years. So here we have this small, good-for-nothing nation, Babylon, that, that, that's not worth uh, anything. And Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah, is predicting this Babylon, whom you just showed your great wealth, is going to conquer you, is going to take you captive to Babylon. So based upon what we've seen of Hezekiah so far, we might think, well, what's Hezekiah's response? He clearly is being humbled through this statement, so he's clearly going to repent. He's clearly going to humble himself. He's, he's going to ask the Lord to intervene and save him. Not this time. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is, read it, is good. For he thought, why not? 
if there will be peace and security in my days. This is just utterly incredible. His response is one of the most selfish and nearsighted things I've ever read in my entire life. After all that the Lord had done for him, he was willing to allow the entire kingdom to perish due to his own pride and selfishness. He was willing to, to throw the entire kingdom of 400 years of kingdoms away. No repentance, no remorse whatsoever, no, no humility, no prayer, no, no begging God to intervene, just a glib comment about how personally, not about how the nation or about his successors and his grandchildren are going to fare, but how he personally dodged the bullet of God's judgment. That's all right. It's a good thing. I'm going to be okay. I, I don't care about anybody else because my neck is safe. But I want you to see, it's vital that we see that this occurred not in an environment of humility and being humbled, but of immense prosperity. During times of humbling, Hezekiah responded in humility, but in this time of immense prosperity, he responded with corresponding pride. Now, I hope you understand that prosperity itself is not sinful, but it reminds us that it can get in the way and often does get in the way of humility and dependency. In Hezekiah, we, we've seen these stories. He started out strong, but finished as a total failure. Why? Because he abandoned God's gift of humility. Hezekiah died and his 12-year-old son began his reign, which lasted then for 55 years. As I've said before, even though all the kings of the northern kingdom were ungodly, none were worse than Manasseh. Among all of his other sins, his chief sins, was sacrificing his son in the fire as an offering to the demonic god Molech. Molech was a Canaanite deity who demanded child sacrifice. Now, it's bad enough to, to worship false gods and, and to offer your son in, in the fire uh, as an offering to a, to a false god, but it's so much worse when as king, as leader of the entire nation, you lead all of your people into idolatry as well. And as I look at these stories, I can't help but think how Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. How do you go from more than 150 years of good and godly kings to, in the next generation, the worst king in all of Israel's history. Remember, Hezekiah returned the nation to worship in the Lord. So, so how did his son turn out to be so wicked? Well, one of the obvious facts is that Manasseh never witnessed his father's acts of humility. Manasseh, as I said, was only 12 years old when he became king, so he obviously did not govern the nation by himself. He had some help in doing that. But my point is that Manasseh only knew his father during his declining years. He, he would have witnessed his father's tremendous pride when he essentially threw the entire kingdom under the proverbial bus. But he never in all of his lifetime witnessed his father's humility and all that he saw as a young boy was his father's life of prosperity and pride. 
But then late into his reign, very late into his reign, something utterly amazing happened. Listen to this amazing passage of Scripture. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I think you will see that for Manasseh, the most evil, wicked king who, who ever existed in all of Israel's history, this was his great humbling. And this reminds us that God will do what God must do to get our attention. And the section that, that comes right after this passage is dedicated to describing how Manasseh got rid of all the foreign gods and idol worship in all of Judah. So at the end of his very long reign, he did what his father had done at the beginning of his reign, which was worship God and, and God alone. And I want you to understand, Manasseh's repentance here was the real deal. This was no mere foxhole conversion just to, to, to get himself out of trouble, to, to save his neck. Do you notice the Bible says that, that God was moved by his entreaty? Do you think for a moment that, that you and I can fake repentance before God? Do you think that Manasseh could have, could have faked his repentance? Absolutely not. Manasseh's repentance was genuine to the core. His great humbling brought about a great conversion of his soul. I, I, I liken this to Nebuchadnezzar's conversion story. Wonderful, wonderful example. And here we have the beauty and the power of the gospel. The gospel is perfect for times of humility and desperation. In fact, the gospel is specifically designed for terrible times and for terrible people who humble themselves. And isn't it true that this is a, how often, I would say all the time, how God leads a person to repentance? He humbles them until they finally humble themselves. And again, you and I are being humbled right now. But do you see it that way? Is this the way you, you think about your daily life? Is this the way you, you think about uh, the, the, the way you're working your way through your days? Do you see that this might become our, our great humbling? Now, as I said before, I'm not predicting a mass revival, but I am saying that it's possible. I am saying that God has removed so many of the things that we naturally depend upon. This is a great humbling. For some of us, he's removed our jobs or laid us off or at least reduced our income drastically. For others, again, schooling is, is vastly different than, than what we're used to. And I would guess that Every single one of us has had some anxiety over the virus and its possible implications, not only on, on, on our, our existence, our, our daily lives, but especially over our health. Yes, I believe this is the great humbling, or at least it could be. God is 
humbling us. That much we are certain. The only thing that remains is whether God's humbling will actually produce humility within you and within me. Are you afraid this morning? Or are you being humble? Now, now both can be true at the same time. You, you can have fear and, and be experiencing humility, but eventually that humility is going to begin to lessen your fear. Are you determined to get through this? Or are you being humble? I personally believe that President Trump is, is doing a good job leading the coronavirus task force. But he keeps saying that, that we're fighting this invisible enemy. And he always says, and I've seen him tweet it many times. He says, we will win. As President Trump so often does, uh, he filters everything through the filter of his great hubris. That kind of pride has absolutely no place in our hearts or on our lips right now. None whatsoever. Are you depressed or are you being humbled? And do not confuse emotional seriousness with humility. They're not the same thing. Now, now, you and I need to be humbled first and foremost because that's God's plan and humility is the only proper response for God's work in our lives. But we also have many reasons that we need to be humbled right now in this season we're experiencing. You've probably heard it said, as I have, that in nine or ten months, the United States and, and really the whole world, the whole globe will experience a sort of baby boom right? Uh, wink, wink, uh, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, now that may prove to be true, but there will also be, sadly, more divorces within the next year. There is going to be a sharp increase in domestic violence. These are days when the relationships in your home will be tested to their fullest extent. Will they survive? Will, will they thrive during this time and afterwards? So what we have before us, among other things, is an unprecedented opportunity to radically change the way that we relate to one another. Last night, Karen said something to me that, that shall we say, set me off. Now, I, I can use, I, I've got a list of excuses. I it was late, I was exhausted, I was trying to finish up this big project I've been working on for, for two months. And, and what she said to me, I, I, I processed it as, I thought she was overreacting. I thought she was kind of trying to shut me down in this endeavor. But then, as I realized, no, no, settle down, Maura. She, she actually is trying to help me. So, I don't know, 20 or maybe 30 minutes later, I eventually apologized to her. And thankfully... There was a pretty minor conflict, and it was the worst conflict that we, we've experienced since all this started. But, but inherent in that story, let, let me give you a, a challenge. Let me give you a target uh, for yourself. Set 30 minutes as your absolute maximum time for apologizing to another. Can you do that? See if you can actually beat my 30-minute record, because I know that you can do that. Now, now you might get through the next few weeks without apologizing to anyone. 
But what I'm telling you is that no one, and I mean no one, will get through the next few weeks without needing to apologize to somebody. Probably dozens of times. And this is going to be hard. This will be exceedingly difficult for some of you because some of you, you have no, you have no lifestyle. You have no habit of ever apologizing to other people, especially to your own children. Recently, a man in our church shared what happened to him when, when he, he had an experience like mine, but, but a little bit worse. He, he sort of lost it in front of his whole family. And to make matters worse, he's like five minutes in, and he's out the door to, to, to go to work that day. But the Holy Spirit had different plans for him because as he's preparing to leave almost out the door, he was suddenly struck with utter conviction of his sin. Right then, he, he called him to work and told, told him, I need to take a day off. I'm not going to be making it in. Then he went upstairs to his family and poured out his heart in repentance to them. That is humility. He was humbled, but then, praise the Lord, he responded in humility and he, he, he crushed my 30-minute record. It happened in just a matter of minutes. But once again, we see that the gospel is designed specifically for times like this. Just as Manasseh needed a massive dose of humbling to see his need for God, so you and I need to be humbled to see our ongoing need for God. Because the core of the gospel is repeatedly that we cannot save ourselves. And I'm telling you, this is exactly what we need in these precarious days in which we find ourselves. Because no one asked for this, right? No one wants this. But regardless of, of human malice that may have began it, uh, begun it or, or uh, human panic that, that continues to thrive in our day, this is God's sovereign plan for the entire world. This is a great humbling, but will it lead you to great humility? Let me leave you with Hezekiah's words to his people when facing the great enemy. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria. Do not be afraid or dismayed between, before the circumstances of our days. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Join with me in a word of prayer. Father, we, we are glad that we don't know what tomorrow brings. In our flesh, we often wish that we knew. In our flesh, we, we wish that we could just wave a wand and, and make it all go away. But Father, it's clear this is your sovereign plan, not for Viroqua alone, not for Wisconsin, not for the United States, the entire globe, unprecedented days before us. I think it's a great humbling. I think it can be a great humbling. What remains is for us to see it 
this way, to see your work among us, to see how this impacts our daily decisions, to see how it impacts the relationships of the person sitting next to us right now, the relationships of those who are closest to us, there are opportunities for radical change. There are opportunities for, for heart examination at some of the deepest level we, we may have ever been in our lives. Father, we need you. We need the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died in our place, literally instead of us, who rose victoriously from the grave and has ascended on high, who is interceding for us even as we pray and sit here this morning. Father, may we respond to your humbling, which you have every right to do, with humility and trust. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.